0: Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, uh, once again, our old friend, Jason Wilson, copy editor at GamesBeat. Jason, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you, Rob. It's been a very long time.
0: And we also welcome back our buddy, TJ Hafer, contributing editor at PC Gamer.
2: Hey, how's it going?
0: Not too badly, I've been having a a fairly nice vacation, and I've been spending a lot of time with a game that I think we're all very excited to talk about today, uh, Europa Universalis IV from Paradox Development Studio. You know, I think this is a series that has evolved considerably in its third iteration across a number of expansions, Uh, and since, you know, EU3 Paradox has changed a great deal, they've made a, uh, the development studio at least, made a very concerted effort to raise quality and accessibility, and I would say that starting with uh, Crusader Kings 2, we saw maybe a more mature, more polished Paradox, uh, you know, sort of... You know, sort of, sort of surface, and I think EU four is is kind of, in my impressions at least, you know, kind of a capstone, um, you know, for for the series, and I was really pleased to see your reviews as well because it looks like we're all having a pretty positive experience with this game uh jason i want to talk to you uh be- because you gave it you gave it a very high score uh, and so did you tj uh mm-hmm. but but jason i kind of want to start with you and maybe you could just tell us a little bit about wh- why why does eu4 succeed so fantastically at being a grand strategy game
1: well, I think it succeeds so fantastically at being a grand strategy game because uh, of two of two reasons, and one reason is one that is not very technical, and the the other is. Um, so let's go about the technical first. It, it gives you so many different options to do just about anything in its historical world that you want. That you could pretty much use whatever strategy you want to try to get ahead, um, especially with the way they have. Fixed trade and made trade more of a viable strategy. But the thing I think makes any grand strategy game—and some people may disagree with me—this is the emergent storytelling that comes out of your playthrough, and that's what I really loved about Europa Universalis Four. Is is um, with my, I had two big playthroughs that I did for my review, but the one that really grabbed me was as um, the Doge of Venice. And the, the, the situations that occurred, the alliances that formed against me, the way I tried to raise Venice to become a leading empire was just fascinating. And it's a tale that you could tell, but you only tell once because then the next time you play, you get a whole new tale out of it. And I think a really good grand strategy game supports that kind of emergent storytelling to where you can make your own tale. And especially when it's one where you don't focus on game crashes or you don't have to worry about systems not working or being so hard that you can't even figure it out. I mean, yeah, let's face it, you know, it's, it's deep game and it's very difficult sometimes for newbies to get into the series. And sometimes it's difficult for veterans when they change things. But, um, the fact that you can tell these kind of stories despite any limitations of the technical aspects of the game is what really makes a grand strategy game for me. I guess we should talk a little
0: bit about the accessibility issue right at the start because I think <laughs> in strategy... Well, I, no, I think in strategy there's there's this horrible habit a lot of us have actually at maybe overselling how difficult and inapproachable these games are. I, I think EU, EU3 even was a little more... Uh, Relatable than maybe we gave it credit for, but I think with EU with EU4 there was definitely at least an emphasis from Paradox and conversations we had with them to sort of lower lower the barrier to entry. And uh, TJ, I wonder if you would like to maybe talk a little bit about that. You know, how well do you think they succeeded at making at decoding Europe Universalis with this uh, latest game?
2: I think they did an amazing job. I mean, I I discovered Paradox via Crusader Kings 2. So, I, you know, really? first first became familiar with them, yeah, when they had started to kind of mature as a company. And then I went back, uh, played a f- fair bit of Victoria 2 and couldn't actually really get into Europa 3. They've made huge steps forward in accessibility, and that's a big part of the reason I gave the game the score that I did because I think the interface is just brilliant. I mean, it's it's probably one of the for, for everything that it has to have a handle on, it's probably one of the the best game interfaces that I've ever seen.
0: You know, it's interesting because they didn't actually change it all that much from U- European Universalis 3, but quietly it's like they, they they addressed a lot of the things that were annoying about their previous their previous interfaces. Well, uh, it's just a
2: yeah. It's a matter of like to give an example. When you have rebels, there's a big button that says "handle them." and right. It will tell you why you have rebels and all of the things that you can do about these rebels. And it's super easy to find. You know, obviously, when I have rebels, I want to handle them. The button is called "handle them," and then it shows me my options. You, you
1: know, one thing I really liked was the boosts. You know, the the way how easy it was just to boost your stability.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and reduce uh, war exhaustion, and those were systems that were, could be a little bit uh, hidden in in previous versions of
2: their games. Right, and there are still I did bring up in my review there are still some hidden values that are not really apparent if you're just playing the game for the first time. Like it doesn't do a an excellent job of you know explaining what you know things like leader shock and uh, maneuver and stuff like that do necessarily. But, um, for the most part, it just, even better than Crusader Kings does a really good job of making you aware of all of the values you need to be aware of and how to manipulate those values. What's, what's really
1: interesting for me is when I, when I talk to people about the game who've, who've, pl- who been playing it or who checked it out in previews, is how everyone seems to be talking about the one point that Paradox has really changed from what it used to be in, say, 2010 and 2011, Um, especially when you consider the low point of games like Sword of the Stars 2, which I realize Paradox didn't develop, but it was still publishing it. And while that game had so much promise, you know, it took more than a year for it to be patched into its final version after its release. And, and, and then you take a look at Gettysburg, which another game that Paradox published. And you're, you're not seeing those problems with Paradox anymore, especially, you know, Crusader Kings 2 last year and this game now. You know, they run great. They, they operate great. They're definitely not games that are beta or beta plus when they come out.
2: Right, which a big part of that is they ended up having like an extra year almost to develop the game, which I think was a very smart idea.
0: Well, right. I mean, when we played it back in, uh, I think it was February. We were all in uh, Iceland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I wasn't. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> in, in February, the game looked uh, pretty damn good. Like it totally looked publishable back in back in February. Uh, and you know, I, I and they, I think they were front at the time. You know, in in previous years, Paradox probably would have looked at the state of the game in, fe- in February and said, "Well, job done, let's ship it." Uh, mm-hmm. But but here they gave it six more months uh, of attention. I think that was that was a really good thing. I, I do think um, you know, it, it's it's I it's I think it's a little unfortunate. I think it's sometimes awkward uh, for the people over at Paradox. You know that Paradox Development Studio and and Paradox Publishing share a name, but you know, I, I think that. You know the, these issues you you bring up, Jason, are are kind of something that I think Paradox struggle a little bit in that they've got this dual identity, right? One is one is as a developer that's been working in in, the, in this niche for years and really, uh, really knows how to make good, uh, stable strategy games at this point, and really really have that down. And the other is a publisher that's growing very quickly and still sort of figuring out how to you know balance balance its values. Uh, And I think, you know, Paradox Paradox Development Studio, at least, are are, are lucky in that, uh, you know, while the publishing arm, you know, has its growing pains, uh, Paradox uh, Development have really come into their own. And I think that that shows uh, with a game like this. But, Mm -hmm. you know, going back to the accessibility issue a little more, I really think, like, you know... When it comes to, you know, Game of the Year awards, I think this has to be recognized for a special achievement in tooltips. Oh, yeah. Uh, really? Tooltips and prompts. Uh, yeah, yes. just because I, I think, you know, it can get a little... So, if you look at the uh, European Universalis interface, uh, you know, while while you're playing, a million and one things are happening. Uh, and...
2: Exactly one million and one at all times.
0: <laughs> yes, at all times. It's, it's actually astonishing, really. Sometimes, yeah. you know, when you scroll the mouse wheel back... And realize that other games are being played out alongside yours. Basically, that you're right. like looking at this little part of the world, right? And meanwhile, you know, you zoom out and you're like, "Wait, how did China just take over South Asia? What what the hell's happening over there?" Right. Uh, and and you may not know, and you may never know, and it may never matter for you to know. But it well, is happening,
2: especially with how fog of war works in the game. You can be playing a European for like 200 years, and you get over to China and. The Oriet horde owns everything, and you're like, "Wow, that was happening when I couldn't even see what was going on over there." So,
1: and yeah. what's really what I <laughs> what I love about that is how it to me. There's two aspects I love about that. First, you know, it's different in Civ because once you meet a civilization, even if it's just a, a trader or just a a, a scout, you know, you, you you get updates on what's going on around the rest of the world. Whereas here, with 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 Europa. Universalis, you don't. And to me, that seems more hist- more in line with the way history evolved. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it.
0: Yeah, it can be... And now, I don't know how much of that is due to the message settings. There's You can, you can sort of futz with um, what you are notified about happening in the world uh, in the message settings. And I haven't totally gotten that to a place where I'm entirely happy with it. Paradox, I, I think, maybe got a little too aggressive with killing off the uh, message spam in previous games uh, where you'd be running the game and then windows would pop up, right, constantly. Being right. like, oh, so-and-so made peace. These guys are at war. Here's a royal uh, marriage. Uh, those windows still complete.
1: pop up a lot. <laughs> oh,
0: but man, uh, not not
1: anywhere like it used to I know, not with, like, not as E3. much as it used to.
0: Yeah, but sometimes I kind of wish it did, right? Because like, sometimes I'll sort of lift my head uh, you know, out of, out of my own problems and take a look around at the state of the world and discover that some sort of cataclysmic Coalition war has been happening now for like ten years or something, mm-hmm. and actually, I probably should have cared about that because it tangentially affects relationships with powers in my neighborhood, and I just didn't see it because paradox was uh, not paradox. The in the interface was maybe a little too shy about bringing that to my attention, and that's 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 one issue. It's a tough thing to tough thing to balance, right? Because there's so many things happening at once that if you try to tell the player about everything happening in the world. Uh, they will lose their minds it, it, and it w- will make the game just look like m- far more chaotic than it really, really needs to be. But at the same time, uh, now it's, it's, it very much behooves you to sort of regularly take a look at that map and sort of you know click on different countries and check out what their diplomatic relationships are like because you know you don't want to miss that golden window to finally plant a dagger in someone's back. Uh, right. So you've really got to be on top of that. But... No, I, just, I but I just love how while you are... So to go to the Rebels example, for instance, that you used, TJ. Mm-hmm. While you are playing, there are all these little status warnings that pop up near the top of the interface. Uh, revolts are possible. And it tells right. you where the risk is highest and everything. That's, a, that's an old thing, but what's new is now you can click on it and it opens up a stability and overextension panel in the interface that now condenses all of those issues into one easily readable screen to figure out what the hell is going on and it shows all the various different rebel groups that are simmering in your empire at a given time what they want and then yes there's that handle them button uh, and you can click on them and consult your options about how you can make these little you know whiny bastards just go away <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think that was I think that's something that I don't think any previous paradox game really, came close to doing as effectively as it's done here, in that it took a long time in previous Paradox games to figure out how to get from what you wanted to do, from your intentions, right. and translate that into something you could do in the game using its mechanics. That was, making that leap took a lot of trial and error, and I think for years the best you could do was tell people, look, just, you know, fiddle with it, it'll start to make sense, but... Right just don't get scared just let it play and just keep going and now you can be like i have a problem what do i do about it you click on the but the, the on the little thing that is telling you you have a problem and suddenly you're in a window that gives you the menu of options you need
2: when i was first trying to learn crusader kings i you know every time i got you know frustrated and started over in that like initial 22 well with crusader kings it's like up to about 100 hours where you're still learning the game it would uh, it would be like one of three questions. It would be I don't know how to do what I want to do, I don't know why this went wrong, or I don't know how to fix what just went wrong. Would be the three big problems I would have. And EU four has given you lots of tools to answer all three of those questions. One of the things I w- I've been wondering about this, and I haven't
1: seen anyone talking about it yet. With with all these tools, are there people out there complaining that oh now it's 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 made it. Too easy to do some of these things. I mean, I don't feel that way. I, I I think all these changes to streamline it and make it easier are great. And I think they're a great way to get other people into the game as well. But I was wondering if some of those really hardcore fans have been talking about that yet. TJ,
2: you you you, you do
1: drive bys on the Paradox Forum, more than I, do,
2: I do I do more than drive bys. I park and make out on the Paradox Forums. Oh gross. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> no, there are there have been a couple of Of the threads you would expect to see uh, that are like, oh, it's dumbed down for casuals and stuff, but they don't tend to get a lot of uh, support. I get the impression that that's not what any significant portion of the community actually feels
0: yeah, and and I think and I think the reason you don't have those complaints is they managed to not reduce the complexity, and actually they've added some new things to the game that we'll we'll get to in a minute here, but not they they did not actually compromise it to make it more accessible. What they did was condense condense the actionable parts of the interface, to so that it was very easy to do what I just described. You know, mm-hmm. I want to look at this problem, take a look at it, and then. Be given a menu of options to address it, and I think that where previously I, I think the game really relied too much, uh, like in EU3, and uh, maybe even like if you look at uh, Vicky or uh, or CK, but I think EU3 probably had this problem the worst, where you basically had to click around different provinces on your empire a lot of times. The province mm. menu was where you did a lot of your business. And what that would turn into with a huge empire is instead of having one window that gave you a rundown of all the issues in your empire in in a certain category, now you just have to sort of go around and figure out. Okay, well, I'm gonna click on this random province in France, and oh, okay, here's here's what I should do there. Um, like the building menu is a perfect example. This is another thing they did for this game. In the upper left, there's a little uh, there's a little uh, like cross sword hammer, uh, and you can just open that up. And click on a certain building type, and suddenly it shows all the provinces where that building is eligible to be built, which is a huge improvement from the way it was in previous games, where it was just like, all right, so Normandy, I'm going to build something here. All yeah. right, Ile de France. And then you just run down, and it was just, it was excruciating. Uh, you know, I could, at this point, I could not go back to that. And I, and I think that's one reason that those games were really. Uh, inaccessible because you just didn't know where to look for information and where necessarily you'd be able to take an action uh you know that was relevant to the information you got here that here that
1: problem's been solved you just made a point that really just just kind of reminded me of a conversation i had with uh with troy goodfellow uh about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and we were talking about civilization and how it would be very hard to go back to Civ four after playing with Civ five, and I, I see the same thing here with U um, four. I don't see how anyone who's been playing with it for any significant amount of time would want to go back. And no, U 3s dead. Like yeah, I. yeah, it, it, it's gone. And I, I think that you know, for 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 a developer who's making a series of games, I, I think that's. You know, one of one of the the kindest things you could say about their game. I mean, yeah, you're completely saying, "Oh yeah, this old one we're never going to touch again." But at the same time, you're saying, "You've made this so much better and so much easier to use. I wouldn't want to ever touch the old stuff."
0: Yeah, you know, I mean that—that's—that's that's the ideal situation for a sequel, right? It, is that it? It it basically renders its predecessor, uh, you know, you know, obsolete, unless it's moving in a really different direction, right? Like unless the sequel is sort of a different take on the on the same on the same franchise. But but here, yeah, this is just a case where uh, it's it's just better in every way, uh, and in many cases, significantly better. Uh, but before we get into some of the major juicy changes, uh, you know because we've talked a little bit about like rebels and revolutionaries, you know as, as just an example of ways this game has not been dumbed down, ways they've added uh, you know, complexity without making it more difficult is just it used to be you had rebels, popping up in your empire. And they were all kind of interchangeable, right? Like, you know, it could be religious zealots rising up. It could be discontented uh, peasants. Uh, The only revolutions that I really remember you had to care about in EU3 was like if you had a Pretender Revolt or Major Noble Revolt, because those guys could field like proper armies, uh, Mm -hmm. as opposed to peasant hordes. But here, you actually have, I I think they actually called it Rebels with a Cause, right? But, but, (laughs) but, but, But here, you have these rebels popping up in your empire, and they actually all want different things. And when you click on that button that says Handle Them, you are given things that make perfect sense for how you could address... You know the problem of an angry ethnic minority in your group, or a different uh, religious religious group, or just a political movement that's that's uh, afoot in your empire. So, for instance, you know you you were given now. It's not just a matter of parking occupation armies to you know keep suppressing those peasants. You know keep whining about taxes and drafting. It's not just about that anymore. Now you really can. You know, you, and, and the, these choices are actually pretty can be pretty difficult. You can you can take a troubled hotbed of like ethnic resistance. Uh, you know, like I play I'm playing the Ottomans right now, and uh, the Hungarians are not entirely happy living under Ottoman rule uh, because I can't make them forget that they used to be Hungarians. <laughs> uh, so you know, you I could just keep slaughtering them. Uh, and I probably will uh, but <laughs> if I were a nicer guy, uh, I could also grant them you know sort of special privileges and you know a a, a measure of regional autonomy right uh, but the cost for that would be uh, you know that I would not get nearly the tax benefit and production benefit. Like basically, it would be like, you know, you're you're basically saying that you're taking hands off a part of your empire, and they're going to be kind of not independent, but they're going to be kind of outside your bureaucracy, and that will lower their resistance to your rule. Uh, but over time, if you keep making deals like that, you're going to cut your tax base way down.
1: Yeah, but 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 then he, but then. You have the other option. You could use your sources that you have to convert them. And that, I found, in certain situations, worked very well. And you could convert them not only with their religions, but also their cultures. And I love that.
0: Right, which kind of brings us to the Monarch points, mm. and I suspect we're about to spend the majority of the show talking about this, uh, and this is this is exactly the sort of nitty-gritty thing, where, it, where it's like, you know, big picture, EU4, it's a great grand strategy game, but why it's such a great grand strategy game, I, I think, comes down to the way some of these systems work, and the Monarch points are just so incredibly fascinating for the way they force you to make trade-offs in developing your empire, and one of the things, you have three categories of monarch points, um, administrative points, uh, diplomatic points, and uh, military points, and you can use, I want to say it's the diplomatic points, to do um, cultural conversions Mm -hmm. on uh, provinces. And it's not a huge amount. Uh, it's, you know, y- y- you might have several hundred uh, diplomatic points uh, at at a given time if you if you don't go if you don't go spendy uh, spend crazy with them, but it, you know it only costs like I think forty to culturally convert. It might be variable based on uh, the size of the province, but it doesn't cost that much to begin converting a province's culture to your empire's core culture. Mm-hmm. And that seems like it's kind of a panacea, and actually my first my, my first instinct when I start playing this game was, oh wow, they've actually made it too easy to build a huge empire, uh, because you just culturally convert these people, and now you're all, you know, simpatico, right? They're, they're just happy to be, be part of the winning team. But that actually gets much more complicated when you start dealing with an empire that's expanded a great deal, and has several different ethnicities now, and converting them uh, takes time, and that small fee it takes to convert the province, uh, when you multiply that out across, like, say, a dozen provinces now that are different ethnicity, suddenly you can't do it. You can't do it all. And that's where the monarch points, I think, really start coming into their own, is at first, when you've got a lot of points, it seems like you've got a series of no-brainer decisions, but they go so fast as you try to... As you try to address, you know, the, the problems that crop up, because you have basically, what is, I, I'd say like three axes, right? Mm-hmm. The monarch points are used for technological development. Right. They're mm-hmm. used for administrative stuff, like increasing stability and uh, culturally converting uh, provinces. And they're also used, um, they're also used to uh, unlock, unlock ideas. Right. Uh, Your tech- and, and, and for buildings and for buildings. Uh, for buildings across your empire so yeah so you're drawing from the same pool of points to address three really distinct uh problem spaces
2: yeah diplomatic power also is used to reduce war exhaustion too which also you know creates an issue if you're spending all of it to do cultural conversions and there's actually a system in the game where if um if a culture represents a high enough portion of your empire, uh, it can actually become an accepted culture, and then that revolt risk goes away. So if you have a portion of your empire that is a specific non-accepted culture, it can actually be better in the long run to just leave them and let them become accepted uh, rather than you know spend all that diplomatic power. Um, did, you,
1: did you do that at some point, TJ?
2: I have done that a couple of times, yeah. Especially um, if you're playing... Uh, a German miner in the HRE, and you end up with, like, Saxons and Hanoverians and, you know, uh, Prussians all in the same empire. Um, I usually just let them kind of blend together because I know that when I create Germany, it's going to become accepted anyway. So there's really no need to to spend time doing that. Um, but, yeah, Rob was talking about, the you know, the fact that you need to spend the same points in several different areas of focus um, i'm I'm a little iffy on on the way they've separated out technology and ideas I'm not sure if that makes sense to me necessarily just in terms of I'm getting better naval ideas but my naval technology is falling behind that seems kind of you know counterintuitive because you have to pick one or the other um, but other than that I would say that I think it really works nicely in terms of, you know, making you prioritize without fiddling with sliders, which is something that I did not really like that much about about EU3. Um, it's a similar amount of granularity, but for some reason it clicks better with me to just be doing these lump sum payments instead of just setting the bar somewhere and and kind of letting it go.
1: It gives you more control and, and lets you plot how you want to advance, too, if you're able to sit down and, and, and take a moment and think about how you want to uh, level up your empire, so to speak.
0: Well, and I think there's a lot to be said for the instant feedback of a button. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of felt like previous, uh, previous Paradox games, and I, I might even say uh, Crusader Kings 2 is a bit like this as well, but they were all sort of about... Um, they were all sort of about inertia. Like, it felt like you were sort of steering a ship. And Mm -hmm. the sliders were sort of minor rudder adjustments you could make. And you couldn't just, you know, slam the entire thing over and make the thing turn on a dime. But the problem (laughs) is the the changes you were making on the sliders were so small that you couldn't feel the effect right away. And it actually would take a lot of, like, game time, the game would have to run before you started to realize that that slider you nudged, like, and, and, and you know, literally, you would nudge that slider, like, you know, 20 pixels or something. Uh, you know, just these small, little, teeny adjustments to the to, to, to slider. And then, you know, like, five years of game time would pass. And you start to realize, oh, so that's, you know, now I see what, what effect that was having. And that's assuming nothing else was going in that that also could have confused the issue. Whereas if you've got this button, you can only press that button so often. Um, and so it really, like, still has that sort of lag time in your ability to affect what's happening in the country. But the feedback is instant. You know, mm-hmm. you can't just, like, spam the spam a button and suddenly all your problems go away because it takes a long time to build up those points. But when you do hit that button, immediately you're like, ah, now I totally know what I just did and the effect it has.
2: So what it allows you to do that you couldn't really do uh, in the past is that, you know, in, in Europa 3, like, you knew you were going to do something that was going to, you know, affect the stability of your nation and you would just kind of have to jam a slider as far as you could to kind of deal with that. Whereas in Europa 4, you can bank those administrative points and be like, all right, I'm going to go to war without a CB. Um, I know my people are not necessarily going to like that so much, but I will just have all of this admin power waiting around to dump in and get my stability back up before I do that, which I think is um, a, a more strategic way to handle those kind of decisions because it allows for more planning ahead. And, um, yeah. Well,
0: and, and they don't let you bank too many of those points either.
2: Right. You can't uh, just save up 10,000 of them or anything like that. But,
0: yeah, you're capped at like 1,250 or something like that.
2: I never hit the cap. I always had something I wanted to use it for. <laughs> but it's, you know, the, the cap is, is well within what it would take to, you know, unless you have huge stability cost modifiers, well within what it would take to get from minus three to plus three if you save up long enough
0: right but uh, but that also means that you weren't using those points to unlock texts to unlock relevant ideas right uh, which which is all part of the trade-off i love and i also really enjoy how these these administrative points are tied to two things um primarily they are tied to the ability of your ruler uh i mean the reason they're called you know monarch points uh so if you have a rule like you you slowly collect these points regardless, but if you have a ruler uh who's good they will they will add their their abilities in the three categories uh administration uh diplomacy, and military they will add their their abilities uh to the rate at which you collect points so if you have a you know really gifted ruler. Uh, in one of these areas, you will increase that pool of points uh, very quickly. You can also increase those points uh, by hiring advisors. The thing is, while it's pretty affordable to hire an advisor who's just going to add, uh, you know, a plus one uh, to, to the rate at which you collect points, uh, which, is, which is a you know, very modest bonus, you can also hire guys who are going to give you a plus three. Uh, which is going to really uh, speed up the rate at which you can do things like get new text, new ideas, uh, you know, improve your stability. The problem is those guys are incredibly expensive.
2: Oh, yeah. I think so, it's not, like, just,
1: not just in acqu- acquisition, but in upkeep as well.
2: Yeah, there's it costs more per month to hire one level three advisor than it does to have all three of your slots filled with level one and two advisors.
0: Right, and I was I was a little worried that it was just going to be, okay. So my rulers, you know, a, a total pots. Okay, I can deal with that. I'll just <laughs> yes. hire. I'll just go shopping and, and get the best advisors, and it will be like we have a well-governed uh, country. And the trouble, the, the the trouble is, uh, you know, unless you are just flush with not yeah, not only have a huge amount of cash on hand to pay the initial outlay, but then hiring yeah three good advisors can basically it is the equivalent of fielding like a hundred thousand man army. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's just that expensive uh, to to keep you know guys like a cardinal Richelieu figure. It's that expensive to keep a guy like that um, keep a guy like that around. So you know I, I just I, I really enjoy how it totally changes the the pace of the game and, and really affects the decision making because when you have a ruler. With a strength in a given area, uh, you, you really have to think about how important is it to mitigate those weaknesses versus just playing to those strengths because doing anything also requires money. Uh, and, and so you really have to think about, should I just be spending the money on like infrastructure upgrades and accept that I'm going to fall behind in certain areas? Uh, or should I spend the money on getting those points in, you know, an area where my ruler's weak? Uh, it's, it's a really, it's, it's, a, it's a really thorny trade-off and it really forces you to think about what do you want to do, you know, for the next like 20 or 30 years of game
1: time. And, what's, and then you could, what really makes it even more fascinating is if you play under a Republican system, such as the Doge of Venice, who comes up to be elected regularly. Oh, yeah. Because you could really then change your direction. You say, oh, okay, well, I want somebody who's better bureaucratically than they are diplomatically, or somebody who has more military knowledge than they do bureaucratic knowledge, or something like that. And you could really affect how you amass your points in that way in a much more different manner than you could with just a regular monarch
2: yeah the other interesting thing about republics is that if you keep the same guy uh in power for an additional turn term for every additional term he serves uh he gains one point in all three skills so the the problem is it reduces your republican tradition and if your republican tradition gets too low you have a roman republic situation where it's like you know what i've just I've amassed so much power that I'm just, I'm emperor now. You guys can deal with it, and then you won't be a republic anymore. And then you get more potential for all kinds of fun
1: things to happen. Um, You know, what I thought was really fun with my playthrough of the doge was even as I uh, lost republicanism, the nobles kept rattling their tongues about wanting to revolt. And I I couldn't quite figure that out, because you would think that nobles would want a monarch as opposed to a republican style, but...
0: Well, one presumes it was a republic for nobles by nobles, and not necessarily, yeah, right. you know, the local butcher yeah. gets a vote.
2: <laughs> oh, I, would yeah, assume, no, but... I would assume the nobles in question, if you're talking about Venice, are probably the patricians rather than feudal lords.
0: Well, this is okay. So, I mean, if there's one thing I maybe I miss a little bit from EU three, is that EU three sort of made it clear some of the tensions underlying your society, and one of the big tensions is that that uh, that 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 battle between uh, the aristocracy and sort of the rising bourgeois merc- mercantile class. Uh, and in EU three, you had this, you had a, you had these sliders that you know on one end of the spectrum, you could be the you know basically like you know. Uh, you know, um, royalist France, you know, where the nobles can just run roughshod over everybody and uh, taking away any of their power would just send them into a fury. But if you didn't address the issue, uh, you know, of, of curbing noble privileges and opening society up a little bit more, you would fall way behind. And, and that, and that's been backgrounded, um, a little more in this game. It's sort of, yeah certainly certainly in in my games the keeping the nobles in line has has not been a major issue uh I don't know if it, if it was for you guys uh, outside of that uh Republican
1: only in venice situation. uh my my issue with England was the Yorks okay and and, and then what once the Yorks would decide they wanted to be the rulers you deal with them, and then I had a situation where then the Welsh decided, "Oh well, if they're going to revolt, we're going to revolt too," and tried to take advantage of the situation that was going on.
0: Right. So, the, so that, that, that that's really interesting too, because I mean, you have the um, yeah, the, the whole War of the Roses situation. I, I I like that there are things that are going to be happening for for these different countries that like you know, happened historically. Like, like you can have entirely separate, different sorts of narratives based on who mm-hmm. you are playing and the direction their game, like, that will change how your game goes. It'll make it, playing them very different from playing someone else. Like, you guys talking about Republican politics, um, you know, as the Sultan of, of the Ottoman Empire, uh, for me, it's kind of like, I just have a free hand to do whatever the hell I want. It really comes down to, you know, how lucky I am with uh, my heirs
2: and that's it's kind of a um, handle of government types uh to some degree in terms of um how that ends up playing out because there will be you know rebellions to change your government type which i guess eu3 had too i didn't play it a whole lot to be able to compare the two but um you definitely will have peasant revolts and noble revolts and Rather than it being a slider, they will just impose modifiers on your country that kind of do the same thing if they win, or if you decide to placate them. And placating noble rebels will sometimes cause peasants to get angry and rise up and want to bring it back closer to an equilibrium. So I think that dynamic is still there. It's more just you know handled through the rebellion system and the um, the... The different government types and the way that your government can shift from one type to another
0: yeah the the government the government types uh i also like that it doesn't feel like you're necessarily penalized uh for for having a a sort of government like if, like you start out you know as if you're if you're sort of an old old-fashioned old monarchy uh you start as a despotic monarchy um but what that does give you is just uh, really powerful expansionist bonuses Uh, you know, it makes it, you know, it doesn't feel like you're necessarily getting, it doesn't necessarily feel like you're, you're being slapped on the wrist for not turning into like a modern enlightened state. It just means that the bonuses you get may slowly get less relevant as the Mm -hmm. game goes on and the world changes.
2: Right. Unless you can just manage to enforce your will over everybody very early on (laughs) and not have to worry about, you know, things like diplomatic reputation so
0: Right, but and that's and that's something else that I think has been hugely improved since EU three. I always complained that in EU three, the game would eventually break over the course of the long haul. Because you were simply too stable, that your ability to guide one nation and make the good decision after good decision simply eventually overcame the uh, the game's abilities to sort of push back against what you were doing. Uh, the 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 AI just didn't coalesce enough into effective opposition. Like they would forget that you're the world's greatest you know tyrant since. Uh, you know, Augustus or, or, or whatever. They just, they, they just, the game, the game couldn't fight back as effectively. Here, the diplomatic game has changed tremendously because it, it does seem, first of all, like nations hold grudges longer. Your reputation affects how other nations view you a little more. But more importantly, they introduced coalitions. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that really contains runaway victories.
2: It's, yeah, and it's, it's one of several mechanics that does that, you know, the coalitions where, you know, obviously if you're expanding too much, more and more people will join the coalition against you until, you know, in one game where I was Austria and I was really overexpanding, I had basically all of Europe in a coalition against me, you know, by the time I, I had reached the late 1500s, which really limits what you can do, um, but also the, the new way they handle aggressive expansion, I think, is is very effective in terms of it's it's E U4's iteration of of the classic bad boy mechanic that Paradox has included in some form or another in, in most of their games where um, if you're just if you're fighting wars just to prove a point, people don't really care. If you decide to take that war to prove a point or that war to protect your trade and include in the peace deal, also you have to give me some of your land, everyone around you for a certain radius is going to not like you as much anymore. And it actually kind of falls off the further away you are. So England didn't really care that I was, you know, taking over Hungary and all the, the German miners. But, you know, um,. Baden did, and the Palatinate cared, and they were some of the first people to kind of unite against me.
0: Yeah, when I was playing the Ottomans, it was really cool because uh, basically Russia and I became sort of the two uh, hegemonies around the Mm -hmm. Black Sea. And we basically became the target of each other's coalitions. And so when you're in a coalition... Coalition is sort of like a super alliance. Like it, 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 the it's it's interesting how they work because once a coalition war starts, there's no stopping it until yeah. the two people <laughs> at the heart of it have settled their differences. It, so it can you,
1: get ugly.
0: Yes. And let me let me tell you how ugly. Uh, let me tell you about the Ottoman-Russian war of 1698 to 1720. Uh Basically, I was in this position. I had a long standing alliance with Denmark. Um, yeah God, this is gonna illustrate so many cool things about uh, about the way this the way this game works. Okay, so basically um, <laughs> you really you really have to step up there for your ally uh, because the thing that will trash your rep- trash your relationship with the country more than any other really is if you hang them out to dry
1: on an alliance. Oh, they! Oh, the game hates that. The game oh. hates that. Oh, yeah. it does not forgive. And and you gotta be really careful because if you play sped up and you miss this and you don't do anything about it inadvertently, you're you're gonna pay for it. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I had the situation where basically the, the issue was I could my armies could beat Russia for a while in the field. I had a better technology, uh, military technology. I had its better infrastructure. The problem is. Russia really succeeded in unifying early and then taking everything from uh, basically eastern Poland all the way out to northern China. Uh, Like, Russia was just a super state. And it was terrifying because you'd see the first wave of 100,000 soldiers arrive, which in, like, the 1600s is, like, already just a much huger army than anybody else can put together. And then you fend that off. And it vanishes back into the fog of war. And you're like, okay, they can't have that many left. And then two more armies of 100,000 apiece would show up. And the extent of the problem you were faced would become <laughs> clear. So the only way to contain these bastards uh, was to form an alliance with Denmark. And uh, and so for basically the game, it, it was really cool. I was sort of handcuffed into supporting Denmark in a series of really aggressive expansionist wars that Denmark was having, because if I let that alliance lapse, Russia would be able to take me down in a heartbeat. I just, I had to keep Denmark on side, or I was doomed. So I had to keep fighting wars for Denmark and sending my troops up into Europe uh, to, to help Denmark out. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, I was having trouble expanding... In any other direction because I had this coalition against me where because I'd expanded so aggressively against against other Muslim states and Russia was always at odds with me, I was basically in a ring of coalition allies that if I attacked one, I would find myself at war with all of them. Uh, and so you have these really, these really, you know, these coalitions will last a while depending on how scary you are and how bad your reputation is, uh, which they didn't previously in previous versions of EU, they, they, they didn't, the AI would sort of forget that you're Mm -hmm. this huge, uh, colossal tyrant, but here nations really are much better about figuring out who they sort of need to band together against and contain. And so you can't just pick them apart one by one. It becomes much harder to do that. So anyway... Uh, because I was in this coalition, and uh, Denmark Denmark joined it as well, uh, I ended up fighting this war on behalf of Denmark with Russia, and I didn't realize this is how it worked. I didn't realize you can't make a separate peace in a coalition war. Nope. Those things are to the death. And apparently Denmark's requests to Russia were so insanely high <laughs> that when the war score stood at 99 we had ta- we had broken the russian army uh we'd taken moscow everything um they wouldn't settle they would not settle and so wow. we had to keep marching east across asia and taking every single province and taking down every single army they managed to su- summon from like you know Ka- you know kazakhstan and uh siberia you know, just just pulling these armies out of nowhere and we had to keep grinding them down. Meanwhile meanwhile, Russian peasants keep rising up because they don't like being occupied by foreign powers. Yeah. So we had to send <laughs> we, we had I swear to God, it must have been over a quarter million men, uh, slowly like crawling across Russia trying to put down these revolts. And only when the war score like only when the ba- basically every last province was uh taken, did Russia finally settle with Denmark. And we returned to basically the same borders. Um, (laughs) Well, what Denmark did was actually fairly clever. It took a couple provinces that it wanted on the border, and then it forced the release of several different nations that Russia had absorbed uh, at the start. Basically hamstringing Russia's attempts to get back in the game. But while that was happening, I had my entire army in Russia, and I couldn't escape it. And I was just hemorrhaging money on fielding this huge army. Uh, So basically, it was like this lost 20 years to this coalition war that I could not escape. Um, There was simply no way out of it. Uh, I maybe I, I didn't try this. I should have. Maybe if I'd broken my alliance with Denmark, uh, I, I could have found a way out. But I don't think I could have. Uh, but so then, just this...
1: but then you, you would have had a, a serious sacrifice there as well.
0: Well, I would have lost Denmark. Plus, if you break an alliance in the middle of a war, your stability just plummets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would have gone straight from like positive two to like negative two or something. And I was yeah, and your prestige would
1: have taken a pretty good hit too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and so the way these things are sort of interwoven you get a much more expansionist conquest is just so much harder because of all of this and war exhaustions become much more vicious uh it seems too uh if you have high war exhaustion uh that plus stability uh can mean your armies are sort of sullenly marching into battle uh and you simply can't keep your own empire together uh so it gets it gets really hairy there uh in a way that in a way that it didn't before it used to be once you hit a certain critical mass you could sort of steamroll over anyone and it didn't matter what the rest of the world thought of you here it really does because the rest of the world will unite to take you down and even if it even if that doesn't happen there's still a lot of mechanics like your people now are much less cool with perpetual war than they ever were before
2: yeah Mm yeah And you can spend diplomatic power to talk them down and be like, no, this is for the good of the Empire, you, you know, and lower your war exhaustion. But then you don't have diplomatic power to spend on other things. So. Well, and it's
0: a losing game because the war exhaustion will keep the rate at which it's increasing will continue to increase as, as this thing drags on and the factors behind war exhaustion worsen. So, yeah, you can, you can push that war exhaustion down fairly easily at the start but after like 15 years of war taxes and casualties and you know suddenly you know you you, you're spending those points and you're basically buying another six months of operations
2: that's the, the other thing that um casualties have such a huge effect on war exhaustion that a lot of times you know it's it's better to wait for a decisive victory than to have a pyrrhic one now because if If you keep your army alive for the most part, your war exhaustion really doesn't raise that quickly. So, you know, you're fighting someone... Good luck you're fighting Russia, TJ. Right. Well, if you're fighting someone (laughs) with far inferior troops and a far inferior, you know, generalship and army tradition, um, you can come out of some pretty big engagements with minimal war exhaustion.
0: You can, but, I mean, yeah, it just becomes... The the problem is um, when those battles start to draw a little more even... Uh, and it's actually much less common, I think, in this game, and it's been in previous games, to have those lopsided wars where someone's completely backwards. Mm. You know, you like there's a few there's a few places where you might have a really significant. Uh, disparity in military power. Uh, you know, if you are basically a generation of weapons ahead of them, uh, you might rack up a few of those just mind-boggling victories where you lose like you lose like four thousand guys and they lose like seventy thousand. Uh, yeah. You might have that happen, uh, but in most cases, that's not going to happen. And replacing those losses is just brutal. Plus, re- replacing troops deployed in the field is hugely expensive. Oh yeah, and it becomes an even bigger drag on your economy. So all the way, all these things are sort of woven together. Is just, I think, does such a fantastic job of keeping EU4 difficult, even if you're having an epic game.
2: Well, and the other thing that I really love that they've changed with war that's been a problem in every Paradox game I've ever played is they've, they've completely eliminated the ping-pong effect, where you beat an army, they flee to the east, you chase them, beat them again, they flee to the west, you beat them, they flee to the east again, because basically, if it's a very close battle... Your army will be so disorganized that they can't chase them right away. And if it's a completely crushing victory, they'll be broken and they will not stop until they get somewhere safe. So you never really have these, you know, ping pong engagements anymore. Does the magnitude of the
0: defeat affect how far they go?
2: It's basically, they're, they're either, you know, defeated or broken. And if they're completely broken, they'll go back to, oh, I'd have to look in the files to see what it, what it actually yeah. is but I think it's the nearest highly fortified location
0: yeah because I had some I had some defeats where like an entire campaign like I, I had like an army of like 60,000 guys just narrowly lose a battle against the Russians mm-hmm. and they marched all the way out of like um they <laughs> marched all the way out of Finland basically
1: yeah and didn't stop until they hit Syria wow wow that's that's long you know you know I was playing with on a much smaller scale with Venice, and, you know, I thought there was a little bit of that ping-ponging still, um, when you're fighting some of the smaller city-states, who may only have two or three provinces, but that could just be a case of scale.
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, if they don't have anywhere to run, that can still happen. Like, if they're, they have, like, two provinces, and you're fighting them in those two provinces, obviously you're still going to get that effect.
0: But I I also appreciate just how, um, war score, uh, it it just seems like war score can really be affected by crushing an army. Uh, so it doesn't always come down to just taking a ton of provinces. Mm -hmm. If you like deliver a hard enough, like shot to the nose of someone's army, suddenly they come to the peace table much more readily. Um, I, you know, when I was conquering Hungary, uh, Somehow France became the defender of the Protestant faith. I don't know how this happened, <laughs> but there, there, there you have it. So Hungary Emergent didn't have any allies. Emergent storytelling. I love it. I, I love it. So yeah, Hungary didn't have any allies. And I'm like, oh, sweet. They're completely diplomatically isolated. I'm just going to have a ball with this. I'm going to take you, you know, I've got a, cast, I've got a conquest cast's belly on a couple provinces. I'm just going to roll them and, uh, you know, leapfrog into Europe. It'll be great. I declare war and like a couple days go by. And then suddenly, I notice that the little there's a little icon in the lower right with the flag of the person you're fighting. For some reason, now it is France. And I'm like, huh? Uh-oh. Yeah. So I click on I click on the flag, and okay, it's France. It's Brandenburg. It's England. Well, no, no, well, England stopped existing. Uh, it's Scotland. Uh, so basically, I had basically declared war on all of northwestern Europe uh, by trying to take two provinces in Hungary. Yep. And uh, suddenly there were 50,000 Frenchmen in Egypt. Uh, because the (laughs) French were also a colonial power in Africa that was growing, and so they were basically just able to sail up the Red Sea and deploy to Egypt, uh, where none of my troops were, and start wreaking havoc. I was like, oh, God, I'm screwed, so I might have to march all the way across Europe and fight in France, which is a total crapshoot. Like, I don't know what's going to happen to me over there. But by sending troops down to fight in Egypt, I eventually managed to slaughter that entire army, and once that army died, France was like, okay... (laughs) <laughs> what can we settle for? Let me,
2: let me get right. my checkbook. Yeah. And it's, uh, if especially if you're, well, I guess if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably played more than just Crusader Kings. But if you're used to Crusader Kings, um, it's it's a vastly superior system in that, in Crusader Kings, it's, it's a matter of getting to 100% war score and then demanding what you want. I mean, 95% of wars are decided that way. Whereas this has a much more dynamic system of you know, being able to request and demand and offer things um, to end a war as a far, as opposed to being an all-or-nothing who gets to 100% first. Yeah.
0: So, Jason, since you're playing Venice, I imagine you did a
1: little more with trade. I tried. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, trade, you know, the, the, the whole way, you know, with trade, is a little different than it had been in the past. Um, I love Very the trade notes. Yeah, I love the trade notes. Me too. Um, I love it. the The trade nodes, the trade nodes are great on two on two different ways. The, the way you can, try, you know, the way you can dispatch forces your merchants to go and dominate trade. But damn, I just love watching those arrows as the trade flows from one node to your country. It's actually kind of pretty. It's a, it's a pretty overlay. <laughs> <laughs> You know, especially since they're you know they're a little on the gold side. You know, kind of hits yeah, with the Yeah, like rivers of wealth. Yeah, yeah. But um, so I try, I tried to dominate trade in the um Eastern Europe in the Eastern Mediterranean, and there there were pluses and minuses to it. Um, in order to so you send your merchants out to a trade node, and then you have them try to you know do their thing there, and then try to. Control and dominate trade, and send it back to your way. But when you're doing it on the sea, you need to protect those those routes. Uh, when you collect the trade with um, ships, and it can only be light ship. I'm not sure why it couldn't be heavy ships.
0: Well, okay. I mean, I think that makes perfect sense. Like, so light ships are frigates, right? Right. Which I mean, were well, the no. ship used to protect trade lines
1: and when you
2: when you first start their their barks. Well, yeah, right. but
0: that's the class of ship yeah. they are.
2: Well, yeah. and the the yeah. thing is, it's you can you can ward off pirates with any type of ship but light ships will actually increase your trade power in the node just for being there Mm -hmm. so yeah that's kind of how that works yeah but you know if you're having
1: a massive fleet or say with these great big ships line, say your engler or something that should work as well for that and um i you know i had an i had an issue with that but um Otherwise, the the way trade works is so much different, so much better. And I thought it was just a little, you know, it was definitely easier than it had been in the past. Um, And then what really helps is you use those monarch points and you start putting them into your trade technologies. And and, and then that really goes. Um, You know, you two seem to be more focused militarily. Um, than I was when I was playing Venice. How did the trade work for you? I'm really, really
2: interested in how a military power does it. I did. I did play one completely trade focused game, basically as the Hansa, Who, at least in the um, in the 1444 start, I think the Hansa are actually my favorite nation to play now. Um, if you you know you can grab up you know, Hamburg and some of those other cities around there, and then just kind of focus entirely on trade because you can go ahead and let everyone else make the discoveries for you. Like, let the other powers discover India. Let the other powers discover North America. And then you send your merchants and your fleets out and completely control those lines of trade, bring them all back to Lubeck, and all of a sudden, you have more money than you know what to do with, you know, and I'm like, I could hire enough mercenaries right now to probably conquer and form Germany. Um, I really love how the trade system works. Well,
0: yeah, and they really... um Made it so that now it's much more viable if you've got the cash to run a mercenary, uh, yeah. you know, trade empire. Uh, there's entire like trees of ideas that are based around the idea that you aren't going to keep a standing yep. army of your own citizens. You're just going to, you know, do these short focused wars by, you know, you just spend the money and, uh, you know, spend the lives.
1: But, yeah, or you know,
2: try to avoid war completely if you can. Well, the folks back home on the farm don't care if, you know, some Brandenburgian mercenaries die for your country, you know, over a trade dispute. You know, you're not sending your own people. You're you're just sending mercenaries. And if you take all the administrative ideas, the upkeep for those mercenaries is not that much higher than it would be to field your own people. So
0: I didn't use mercs too extensively. Do, do, do they have less of a drag on war score? I mean, uh, war exhaustion?
2: I believe so i mean i couldn't confirm that but it seems like when i use mostly mercenaries since it's not coming out of my manpower pool they don't care as much
1: i you know when i played with venice you know again you know smaller scale here uh when i used mercs it really didn't look like it was affecting my war exhaustion the same as when i decided to raise my own levies oh that's interesting um and, so, and it should be like that too. I mean you know the great thing about mercenaries is they want to fight and the great thing about your people is they don't want to fight
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the problem is if you don't if you don't take the ideas that let you deploy mercenaries yeah. with impunity, they are a huge, huge drain on your economy. Like the few times I had to like basically the nice thing about mercenaries is not only like the mercenaries are quick to build. Uh, you can you can a mercenary arm, army in the p- space of a few weeks.
1: Yeah. You know, some, sometimes you know, the, the speed is, I would say, gosh, 80% better. Oh, on what easily. You
0: have. Easily. So, like, if you lose your standing army in a major engagement and there's nothing between your capital and the enemy, uh, you can quickly hire whatever mercenaries around and put together a scratch force and that'll save your ass. The trouble is, if you don't have stuff that will, like, reduce the drag of mercenaries on your economy, uh, then your your the, the cost is just utterly crippling. Uh, And it can take a long time to dig your way out of loans, Uh, which is, I think, another cool thing, by the way, is just, um, you know, in in EU4, I sort of, in EU3, you sort of had this unrealistic, uh, your empire really had to be in the black. Uh, You didn't have too much flexibility uh, once you ran out of cash. Here, man, uh, you can, you know... If, if you if yeah. you if you're a great empire, you can spend yourself into the ground. Yep. Uh, and you'll be able to get it back. It'll it'll be hard to pay off that debt, but there are times it totally makes sense to, you know, take out, you know, 20 loans, 20 massive loans to yeah. pay for a war.
2: <laughs> I don't think I've played a single game of EU4 so far that I didn't spend some portion of the campaign significantly in debt, whether that was because it- I was being attacked by someone that just simply had more troops than I could field, and I had to hire as many mercenaries as I could to fend them off. Or, you know, sometimes I've just I've colonized a huge swath of territory, and it's like, you know, I'm going to go ahead and take out a bunch of loans so I can build up the infrastructure now, and it'll pay dividends later. Yeah, it took me a little while
1: to figure that out. Um, maybe because I'm just so used to, you know, you got to be making money from... You know, games like Civ, you know, if you don't have gold coming in, you're fucked.
0: Yeah, here it's very much more like, you know what, this is the this is the era of the rise of the modern banking system, you know, you're, you're, you're a nation state, you can spend what you want. Buy the thing you need, uh, you know. And if you do overdo it, of course, uh, you know it, it can actually be much harder to dig your way out right. too. Like you can, mm-hmm. you, like if you really screw up and that war doesn't turn out turn out well, and you spent you know a ton of a uh, ton of loans trying to fight it, and then you didn't get any sort of peace windfall, you didn't make any gains, well now you're basically being charged your you know you're basically paying your gross national product in interest right uh, so that you know there you go
2: you're not only and you're not only paying interest but every time you miss a payment on a loan your inflation goes up which increases yeah. the cost of everything
0: well, yeah, the inflation thing is another interesting thing too. Because if you just like take out a ton of loans at once, or if you're really flush with money and you start spending it like a sailor, uh, you will find that you you, you your economy is inflated, and suddenly that 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 huge infusion of gold you had uh, didn't go nearly as far as you thought it would, because uh, you managed to distort your local economy, uh, which is which is pretty cool.
1: Um, you know, getting back to you're talking about. Um, the city-states. Did you guys? Did you guys fire that? These these little countries and empires sometimes got a little uppity and, and seemed like they could do more than really what they should be able to, and seemed far too
2: aggressive for their size and resources. Well, the thing is, sometimes they can. The way alliances and coalitions work now, there could be. I mean, Ulm could be the linchpin of a chain of alliances that completely halt your expansion you know, into southern Germany. It You know, it can work out that way.
0: It does sort of seem like some of these small states, and I guess maybe, you know, there is historical precedent for small states uh, being the cause of just huge disasters. But, I mean, it does seem like sort of, some of these guys, because they know who their friends are, are just able to be like, screw it. I'm taking this guy down, and it's like you are literally fighting over like a hundred acres of land in southern Germany. What are you doing? But yeah, they'll just what the hell? I'll try it. I, I had this thing where I, I, I was allied with Ukraine at one point because I just needed one more body basically to throw throw against Russia. I just needed Ukraine, even though it had this narrow belt of land and wasn't that huge a power. It would be some help if I was in a war with Russia. And okay, that's cool, whatever. And then Ukraine's like, you know what? I'm doing it. I'm taking down Lithuania. And Lithuania <laughs> was huge. I was like, what yeah. are you doing? And it's sort, of, it, you know, it's sort of like, I guess, like when your dog knows it's being bad, but it doesn't really care. It sort of looks at you like, no, I'm just going to leave the yard. What are you going to do about it? You're going to come get me. And so you do. You bring your army and you go up and you're fighting Lithuania because, hey, you, you had to, you had to step up. So it does seem like they can be a little aggressive. I did find them actually more to be opportunistic. Uh, They they seem to be very good at knowing when the moments arrive, that the great powers are distracted or someone's diplomatically isolated. And okay, this is our chance to maybe pick up a quick province here.
2: Well, they also are very, very aggressive trying to make alliances with you if you are bordering one of your rivals and have the power to deal with that rival like i think in my hansa game um mecklenburg just kept asking me for alliances over and over and over again because they really 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 badly wanted to take down brandenburg uh and they knew that i could help them with that and they were just hell bent on getting an alliance with me but the more you reject them the more they hate you right
1: yeah yeah, but but then you get into this war that you don't need to get into and you, f- you find yourself mired in a conflict that just drains your resources with no real benefit to you. Uh,
0: yeah, you know, and, and the one thing that maybe I'm, I, I wish there was a mechanic that allowed you to do this is with the coalition war with Russia, for instance, um, or really a lot of alliance wars, it's way too easy to find that you didn't get anything out of it. And yet you don't necessarily want to sign a separate peace because that dings your reputation uh, mm-hmm. and hurt, like, it, it hurts your relationship with the, with the ally you're fighting alongside. So with the war with Russia, though, I couldn't even make a separate peace. Um, and so when we finally made peace, even though I contributed probably half the, half the troops to the victory and probably more than half of the uh, actual campaigning, uh, Denmark walked away with 5,000 uh, 5, florins. And I got nothing for the entire, for 20 years of war. You got I nothing got for not 20 of, years of war. Right. And that just seems like, okay, so there should be something where like, as a coalition member or something, I should be able to say, no, 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 by the way, here's my war goal. And we're in it, you know, we're in mm-hmm. it till the end. I kind of felt like there were too many times where I was given this choice between like, look, I can screw this guy over and sign a separate peace, but then that my ally will go on to lose the war. And I don't want that to happen. But if I wait for them to win it, I will get nothing. Uh, And and sometimes that was a little frustrating.
2: I think it's part of it is the immediate nature of, of war goals and peace treaties where like the, the terms are decided on as you make peace. That's when all of that stuff fires and there's not really a system in place for like, I'm going to add this as a pending war goal that you have to accept if we make peace later down the line, but it would definitely be nice to have something like that. I agree.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think Victoria 2 actually does have some stuff like that where you yeah, sort does. of, yeah, you can you can say okay, so here we're all fighting this war together, but here's what I want out of it, uh, and you have to sort of pay uh, to make that happen. You have to have the clout to do it, but it, it does it does work, and I kind of wish that happened. But um, and, and,
1: and you know that's a shame because if you're the bigger alliance member, you should have the clout. Yeah, you know, there should be a mechanic there that says you know what. I'm not going to get dragged into this war without getting something I want
2: out of this. Otherwise, I'm not going to support you in your war. There there is sort of a mechanic for that, but I don't think it works for coalition wars. Because if it's just a regular alliance war, and you're way, way more powerful than the person that started the war, you will just automatically become the war leader when you join. But I think with coalition wars, whoever leads the coalition is locked in as the leader of the coalition.
0: Right, and I don't know how Denmark became the leader of that coalition. It might, it might actually just be whoever started the fight, whoever's yeah, the that, object of the war. Yeah, <laughs> whoever
2: whoever actually made the decision yeah. form coalition against X is the but coalition leader. Yeah,
0: you you asked a little bit about like how how trade was working as a military guy. Yeah, you know, I found that uh, you know was, nothing helps trade like occupying several of the trade nodes. Yes, uh, that I mean now, admittedly a really strong merchant power with really good merchants and a lot of bonuses to trade uh, can still get into trade nodes you own uh, and actually walk out with, you know, a a huge portion of the cash. So, I mean, it's not like you're locked out if you don't control it. But if you physically occupy the trade node, uh, occupying one doesn't make that huge a difference, but if you control, like, two or three stations along the line, uh, then that actually is going to have a pretty significant effect. And that was actually, you know, one of, one of, the, th- one of the reasons I ended up uh, having to finish exterminating the Mamluks was they had uh, Cairo. Uh, they, 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 had, they had the Alexandria trade node they had, uh, coming through Egypt. And I had Constantinople, and naturally I really wanted uh, the Constantinople trade route to, to flourish, but as long as the Mamluks held Egypt, They were actually taking most of the money passing through Egypt, and it wasn't coming upstream uh, to Constantinople. It was hitting Egypt. They took a huge cut, and they sent it directly on to the Italians. Uh, So I went down there and occupied the damn thing and uh, basically managed to redirect all that wealth now up into Constantinople, where my merchants were you know, sort of scooping it, uh, into our coffers. So that's, so, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of how it was working as a military guy. It's it's a really inefficient way to boost your trade empire because it requires you basically going out and conquering a hell of a lot of territory
2: to get one node. Uh, well, certain, certain trade nodes, you kind of have to do that because if it's a trade node where you can't exert a lot of naval power, your only real option to get more power in that node is to take over provinces and build trade power buildings in them, right. such as a such as a place in Germany,
0: right? Yeah, I I, I will say I, I did like the fact that I, you know I, I disagree, Jason. I think I don't think ships of the line, uh, big warships, should really be beneficial to trade. They they really only exist. So that your lighter ships don't get completely blown off the ocean in a real shooting war. But I don't but I think I, I like I like that you're sort of forced to balance the need to run a large, like shipping protection fleet mm-hmm. against having ships built for the purpose of winning a major war with a major naval power i i like that i like that disparity uh you know as the ottomans was kind of cool because there was a point where i was like oh man i'm just going to dominate mediterranean trade and send guys around the red sea if i can and it'll it'll be great we'll 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 really have a huge trade empire but then when i found myself at war with uh, some western european powers with huge trade fleets and huge navies um my little light fleet, my, my light ships were completely annihilated, and there went all my trade influence. Uh, well, so I had to spend two years building a war fleet.
2: That's probably my favorite thing about this trade system is just the the intuitiveness of the fact that there are a lot of strategy games that have mechanics for abstractly attacking someone's trade lines. In EU4, it really does feel like you are you are directly attacking the ships that are bringing trade. You know, back and forth mm-hmm. to your yes. enemy's nation. It's it's a very, uh, it's it's a very low abstraction depiction of that, which I like a lot.
1: And the one thing I did did like though is you know when you're in the season stuff is is how it actually does rate the effectiveness of a galley class ship, right? And, and take that into account. Oh,
2: so good. Yeah, in the the beginning of the game, galleys dominate like the Baltic and the Mediterranean, eventually heavy ship tech gets to the point where one heavy ship to one galley is not really efficient to build galleys anymore if you have the money for heavy ships. But
0: I, I don't know. I, I, I found, at least in, in my game, I think mean, we're pretty far along now in the 1700s, and yeah, I mean, you still need the big ships to be the backbone of the fleet, but in those shallow water engagements, man, like galleys seem to really clean house still uh at the at the point where I'm at. Um I think I'm uh, either on the Galeas or or whatever the uh next ship up is. But I, I find it's useful to keep those around. Uh but yeah, they're no substitute for the uh for the big ships of the line.
2: Well and unlike armies you have to rebuild fleets and decommission old ships so it, it can take some time to rotate out. Yeah. I'm wondering did you guys do
0: much with uh colonialism?
2: Yes. I did not <laughs> Other than trade, that's my well. Colonialism is probably my favorite way to play the game, followed by trade. Um, just because I, I just love the alternate history aspect of, you know what? I'm going to colonize Canada as Denmark, and I'm going to have Danish Canada. I just that. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I I find that more interesting than squabbling for power in
0: Europe. So what what do you find interesting about it? Because I actually love. So I actually love the whole like. Um, you know, Machiavelli, the prince thing, you know, balance of power, relationships among nations. That stuff fascinates me. What are you getting out of the colonial game?
2: I think that's, I mean, I, it's exactly what I just said. It's it's the idea that I'm taking a nation that did not own this part of the world in real life, and and I'm going to take it over, and I'm going to have my own separate, you know, commonwealth, sort of, yeah. that stretches to all these places around the globe and
0: but in game terms what are some of the interesting stuff what are some of the interesting challenges you're facing with running a colonial empire that like i'm not getting say by just like you know repeatedly pummeling the crap out of russia
2: yeah well a lot of it has to do with knowing when to set found colonies when to turn those colonies into cores um because you're competing with other colonial powers pretty much all the time. Even if you get an early lead, they're eventually going to catch up to you. So it's like, all right, I have, I think the maximum I've ever had at one time is three colonists. I can have all three of those guys running at once. So I'm grabbing up more land. I'm denying land that my opponents could colonize, but then I know I'm going to have to core all three of those provinces when they come up. And am I going to have the admin power to do that? Am I going to need that admin power for something else? Um, So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting way of making you choose between, all right, do I want to colonize the entire eastern seaboard at once to make it really hard for Spain to follow me? Or, you know, do it little by little and use some of those points to increase my admin tech, which will let me get other things that will make it easier to hold on to the colonies I have.
0: Did you ever find yourself, like, saddled with crap colonies that you just occupied for, like, strategic positioning purposes to keep someone out, but they were kind of dead yes. Yeah
2: if if you're if you're going the strategy of I'm gonna block off the coast so that any colonies my rivals found will not be able to get naval support. Um, you do end up doing that. You're like, okay, this has base tax too, and it's you know, not really even worth my time, but I'm gonna colonize it anyway, just you know, for the sake of making sure that I hold the strategic clout in this area.
0: Yeah, it's definitely, I, I think a colonial trade game is probably my next item on the agenda for for playing more EU. I'm also really curious to see how, uh, like, you know, East Asian nations uh, perform that's different, because, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've spent, you know, in most of these games, I, I tend to stick in Europe, uh, just because, again, I, I love the power politics uh, of that area. But I'm really curious to see how, you know, something like, uh, Japan is to play when you start the game, sort of in the middle of a civil war, uh, or or you know China when you're sort of beginning as a as a fading empire, uh, and how you can reverse that trend. I, I think at least what I've seen so far is uh, is is pretty encouraging that a lot of the nations in 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 Europe and uh, Western Asia are actually pretty well defined in terms of like the way they sort of play differently from one another and I'm really hoping that continues as you roll across like you know the steppes and uh, South Asia
2: China um, specifically has or Ming China specifically has really interesting unique mechanics that like no other country has uh, where they have basically three factions that you can support at any given time. and all uh,
0: right so this, is, so this is straight out of the Divine Wind expansion right. for U 3
2: It's almost identical to that, where, like, whichever one is in power, um, but they're tied to the three types of PowerPoints, the military, administrative, oh. and diplomatic. So, That's fascinating. Yeah, it's in addition to your leader, and in addition to your advisors, you can use that as a way to adjust where your focus is, but... If um if you've been supporting one faction for a long time, it's really hard to get them out of power. If you decide right. I want to support the military faction now, but the diplomatic faction is so entrenched that it's going to be a while before I can make that switch. As
0: an aside, did you guys find yourselves using the national missions a lot?
2: Yes. Yes. I- <laughs> Especially early. I I feel like it's a great um it's probably not as as huge of an improvement for players like us that play, you know, grand strategy games a lot, but especially for newer players who are running into, you know, those core three questions I talked about earlier, you know, what should I be doing? Um, Why is this going wrong for me? And how can I fix it? Um, As far as what can I be doing? I think it's fairly ingenious to give the, the player the same sort of weighted... Um, mission prompts that the AI has been getting behind the scenes all along. But they've you know made that visible and made that something with an extra incentive that the player can actually elect to make a goal.
0: Yeah, for me, I was definitely, yeah, early game especially, like it's, here's some good ways to start out uh, that can be really good in helping you set a direction early.
1: Not only setting a direction, but reaping some rewards. Mm-hmm. You know that could really be a boost to you early, especially if you make some poor decisions or find yourself struggling, or if you are somebody who's new and just trying to find a way to get, you know, some 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 grasp on what's going on.
0: Yeah, when I when I had uh, a ton of provinces that I needed to uh, core as the Ottomans and make them sort of a part of the uh, patrimony. Uh, the, the game gave me a quest. It was like, hey, reduce your overextension. And overextension is basically when you've absorbed too many you know, mm-hmm. new provinces, uh, the more places that are newly acquired to the Empire and haven't really been integrated, uh, the, the more penalties you get uh, f- for having them a- as part of your holdings. And uh, it'll have very negative effects... Uh, across a variety of variables. So you have to reduce overextension by making these, you know, sort of, uh, you know, consolidating a little bit and making these guys at least uh, somewhat more part of the empire. So I got a quest to reduce my overextension. Uh, and, and the incentive, and it was, it was great, once, uh, once I finished uh, doing that, which I would have done anyway, because obviously I couldn't sit there at like 75% overextension for long... Um, Although I couldn't continue core construction while I was fighting with Russia. So that actually that, that ended up being a really epic quest. <laughs> but once I finally uh, consolidated, uh, it gave me a plus three, uh, admi- uh, a plus three diplomat or administrator uh, in my capital. And so I was able to hire him because I had the money because uh, I was at peace. And so, yeah, it was a really nice bonus. It was like, well, you know, these guys are rare, but here's one we're going to give you uh, if you just do this, you know, do the smart thing here. Uh, which was which was really cool. I, I enjoyed having that. Um, basically, uh, I I'm just I, I am so thrilled at, uh, at just how much is going on in this game and it, it's telling to me that I, I have played uh, you know I'm curious to hear how much you guys have played. Uh, I think here between um, you know b- between the beta and the review, I, I think I have to uh, yeah, I think I'm at like 45 50 hours now. Uh, of eu four time and i just don't want to stop playing
1: well i i've got about 40
2: but i have to stop so i can move on to another review game if uh if you count paradox on tour last year if you count iceland and stockholm and the preview and the review and the live build i have uh coming up on 90 ish hours Woo! And I'm still loving it
1: I, I really want to get back to it but I, I gotta do some other things first and but but what, what what I just want to I just want to play with it you know I, I don't it's, I don't even need to set like any I'm gonna dominate this or I'm gonna grow a great empire I just want to explore what more of what's new what's changed and yeah. just see different ways to
2: play with it and see different ways to break it I just want to experiment the game I'm about to start actually uh, there's there's that there's a save converter that will actually turn your Crusader Kings 2 game uh, into a mod for Europa 4 that will keep the same political setup and everything so I took Crusader Kings I started at the very earliest 867 start date I turned on the cheat to become an observer and I just let it run up until 1444 and um i imported i just imported that into Europa before and it's like there's Ooh. an empire of great britain that follows like the norse religion and the timurids own half of europe and they destroyed the roman empire and uh it's uh it's gonna be a fun i'm probably gonna play at least five or six different games just on that alternate history save file that was created
0: yeah, I think you know, and if they they if, if that alone, I think if it would justify Victoria three. Oh yeah, uh, if you could chain those together uh, as, as well, and just basically uh, never stop playing, just you know, finish one, finish one, uh, <laughs> you know, nine hundred year chunk of history, go back to the start and do it all over again. Oh uh, yeah, but. Yeah, so uh, you you both gave this game uh, extraordinarily high scores, and I'll be reviewing it for PC Power Play, and uh, my review isn't out yet, but I think it's safe to safe to say I will be giving it yeah. a very positive uh, review as well. Um, I don't I don't know I, I, I feel like you know we're in the middle of a great year uh, for strategy games, and I was really happy with uh, Civ Five Beyond the Sword, uh, but I'll tell you just with my personal taste, what I wanted of Grand Strategy. Uh, you know, Europa Universalis 4 is, is kind of it. it, it it's, it's, it's like a game that was, like, handcrafted for my preferences and what I like to do in a strategy game.
1: Yeah, now if they just had one that was um, sci-fi like this and worked, unlike sort of the stars.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I was... Well, someone asked me an interesting question on Twitter yesterday. They asked me, you know, if you could only play Crusader Kings 2 or Europa 4 for the rest of your life, which would you pick? I think uh. I think I would. I, I still have to stick with Crusader Kings two. Although I wish it had a lot of the improvements and innovations from Europa four ported to CK two. That would be like the perfect game. Um, Europa, it's. I mean, it's lacking kind of the RPG elements and the the focus on individual characters that Crusader Kings has. Um, and I also I just like the Middle and Dark Ages. I think they're you know more interesting than the Renaissance. On you know from a totally subjective standpoint. Um, Side note, you were in a metal band, were you not? Kinda sorta. We never actually really recorded anything <laughs> like right. uh demo wise, but yes. Um yeah. I was at one point part of a a uh, nominal metal band. Yeah.
0: So then you need to
2: take that. Titu- it was a titular assault. title. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm thinking of, yeah, I
2: think uh Yeah.
0: Your your preferences there might might inform which which era you prefer. Yeah, uh,
2: I mean the Viking Age, that's that's my my stuff, right there. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, and see, for me, I think it's more. Um, you know, Crusader Kings two is is really cool. There's a lot of things I love about it. Uh, it is great storytelling machine, but I think what I love in EU four is it puts me in a position I'm happier being, which is just the strategic. Mastermind, you know, sitting in sitting in the palace, you know, steepled fingers, yeah, uh, plotting my next move. And uh, so this is this is really kind of it for me. Uh, but either way, uh, it is an extraordinary strategy game, and uh, it seems to be coming with all of our uh, highest recommendations. Oh, yeah. Uh, so if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't picked it up yet, um, it seems like a very safe bet that you do so. You do so, because uh, it is it is truly something special. Uh, a great yeah. game has gotten even better
2: it's the highest highest review score i've ever given actually
0: it may end up being that for me
2: yeah me too me
0: too well there you go uh there you have it uh and we will leave off uh there for now uh though i'm sure eu4 will come up again uh in the coming months and i'm very curious to see how they expand it because boy does this seem like a complete game uh i don't know what i'd want to see added beyond uh, the few little you know a few little tweaks we, we talked about earlier. Um, but that'll do it for this week. Uh, Jason, TJ, thank you so much for uh, spending your Saturday afternoon talking about a 4
2: glad to, glad to be on. Thank you.
0: Alright, until next week, this has been Three Moves Ahead. Good
2: night.